Hello, universe. It is 4.42. That's in the a.m. here on the 27th of March, Sunday, March 27th at 4.42 a.m. Coming at you from the platform bed frame edge that my dog will only give me since she has decided to take up the rest of the space. And uh, we just got back from a walk. <clears throat> and I do like to take my old dog out for walks late at night, early in the morning. The 3 o'clock hour is our time, but this time it was the 4 o'clock hour. Because it gives us pretty much the whole neighborhood to ourselves. So we can move as slowly as we need to. Stop as many places as necessary. Smell as many things as are of interest. And essentially take 45 minutes to walk three and a half blocks. But moving slow is not a problem for either one of us anymore. In fact, I'd say moving slow is now my preferred mode of operation. And that's another way that I know things are changing because my whole life I've been in a rush to get to something, to finish something, to achieve something, to do something, and never knowing what that was. Well, I just kept chasing. And I guess that's a terrible segue. Is it a terrible one? Pretty terrible. It is a... Oh, I could probably twist it into something that will sound like I meant for it to be more than it is, but... Um, moving slow, being deliberate, having the courage to look back on one's work and say, I'm not sure I stand by that now because I've had enough life experience since that moment to change my mind. And the reason that Ludwig Wittgenstein, the uh, Austrian philosopher from, he was born in 1889 and I think died in 51, same year as Orwell, is that right? Maybe. No, Orwell might have been 52, but their influence was similarly timed, uh, essentially coming uh, of age in the World War One era and then having a reflective moment in the World War II era. I would say there were several intellectuals who were on that arc. But Mr. Wittgenstein was a, he was a, the ninth of nine children. He was from a wealthy family and he was educated under the wing of Bertrand Russell, another uh, philosopher of note. But Wittgenstein and Russell, while certainly Russell was heavily influential, especially in Wittgenstein's early years, and was the with the Vienna Circle and logical positivism and all of that, his core to Russell. And Wittgenstein is integrated. As a matter of fact, his Tractatus Logicus uh, Philosophicus is um, is the seminal work of the of of logical positivism basically the foundational document of the, of the movement and and wittgenstein would i think be best described as a reluctant um par 
participant in that dialogue. And not that he, uh, <laughs> he, I, I know he, he would say that Russell misinterpreted him. And I believe he would say fundamentally that the Vienna Circle was misinterpreting his, his goal initially. And I think what I see as his approach, possibly even fundamental flaw, early was to think of language as descriptive of a reality and that its core objective is to be as truthful in that description and frankly concise but that's built into the structure of language um and that everything else other than what is describing reality as it exists in its truthful state is nonsense and in so doing the philosopher's role is to make sure that we unwind the knots of silliness that our questions like what does representative justice truly mean it, to Wittgenstein meant you've taken the concept of representative justice and misapplied the language fundamental that it, that it is. You're asking a question that has no bearing. You are, t you are tying knots by misrepresenting language at its fundamental level. Language is here to describe reality accurately and in truth. Everything else is of no use. And uh, mic drop as it were, off the stage, having essentially solved philosophy's problems in the sense of a patient coming into a doctor's office saying, I don't know what to do, doc. I need some help. I feel so depressed. I'm always so down. I'm always so upset. The world just seems so dark. And the professional looking at you and saying, you are speaking of things that do not exist you are claiming maladies that are imagined and my only advice to you is go think other thoughts because those thoughts don't seem to be working out very well for you all of what you're saying to me is malarkey and uh and so whenever the uh the interpretation of his work or misinterpretation of his work would lead to um, to more axiomatic um, uh, approaches in linguistic uh, structure, he he would say, again, you're you are you're the problem. You're the philosopher coming in philosophizing, and what we don't need around here is a philosopher. The philosopher's job is only to see that there is a knot here that people think exists that doesn't and show them how to untie it so that they know it doesn't exist. And <clears throat> so what language is, is essentially a framework over reality that we network in social interaction to describe reality the best we can. And what we have in our head, these thoughts that arise are the snapshots the pictures, the portraits of reality as we interpret them. And that all of this logical connectivity in reality, thought, and language interpretation is ultimately working toward functional truth. Anything else is nonsense. And he writes this out in essentially a logical proof, 
where he starts with point one, then sub point one point one, one point two, one point two one. And uh, so yeah, it makes for fantastic reading. You should definitely pick it up. And if anything uh, is going to cure your insomnia, Wittgenstein's Logicus Tractatus Philosophicus would be one of my choices. Anything by Hegel, philosophical nut nightmare that his phenomenology was. But not to get distracted because that doesn't make Wittgenstein a hero of mine. A little bit that he that he um, rebuked Russell's uh, forward for his own book, which I find hilarious, because the book really doesn't get published unless Russell's involved. So, Wittgenstein, though, uh, not one to uh, to compromise his his thought ideals and uh, and analysis, intellectual analysis. There was no room for misinterpretation. That was essentially what he felt philosophy's fundamental flaw was the creation of those misinterpretations and that the uh, the twisting of, of language because of those uh, misapplications by philosophers was creating a whole bunch of, of chaos that didn't exist literally you're coming in telling me that you are suffering from depression depression doesn't exist there you go you're fixed that's essentially what he did to philosophy. You're coming to me with all these things that you think are core problems that have no solutions. I'm telling you that they're not even problems. There, I just fixed your discipline. And you can argue that um, that Heidegger took this to the ultimate level and basically said that what what the 20th century industrial revolution and the the dissemination of of information especially mass communication had created essentially the solution to fix philosophy and now the philosopher's job is to go out and experience the world which it always was but because we didn't have this massive access to the world's repository of information to be our guideposts through those experiences we kept stumbling into lesser versions of experience that were now irrelevant because the world was there to be had and Wittgenstein, and, and these are hugely influential periods of time, obviously, World War I to World War II, <clears throat> in that course of time, after leaving philosophy entirely, I think in 1921 or 22, or even earlier, 20, he, uh, he comes back to Cambridge, I think it was Cambridge, um, he comes back to, to uh, the academic world as a professor, and starts lecturing in a new way, essentially dismantling his initial take on language's um, descriptive purpose and communicative value and core uh, intent. Because now he sees that, in fact, there, there is no fundamental truth of description of the world because so much of the world's uh, evolution in concept is dependent on the social language description of said context. I know that sounds stupid, but essentially what it means is that, in fact, 
language is a series of 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 um, of of small uh, the games or what he uses to describe these things. But wherever we're we're emerging with meaningful language descriptions, we're doing so because of social interaction that it's dependent on. The whole structure is dependent on the social interpretation that language is there to lubricate. Somebody alone on a desert island who has never been interactive with another human being has absolutely no purpose for language. And what's interesting is this person, imagine that you never had learned language. You still experience the world in a thinking context, but you lose the limit that language puts on it as you try to describe it and share it. When I say there's a limit to language, it's because it inherently takes your thoughts and puts them into a, uh, a framework of sharing those thoughts in a descriptive, interpretive way for someone else to relate to. But if that someone else isn't there, what do you think of the idea of loneliness compared to what you think of it when it's been described to you? You've had the interpretation of it in language. You've had other people's opinions as to what they think it is. You've got a whole subset of social interaction that comes before you even get to share what you think of loneliness. The concept itself doesn't emerge in your thought processes. It almost is given to you through social construct how to think about it. And when he realized this, that language doesn't in fact act as a technical uh, manual to describe the world, that it is the emergent cooperative reality that we create because the world at large is what we experience. Well, you can see how that the way that you are given linguistic phrasing, concepts, and ideas very much mold how you think, what you think, and what you believe. It's all a social agreement in which you are immersed and must then participate at the level in which your thoughts cannot help but be crafted by the entire framework in which you are living. You can't escape it. You can't get to a prescriptive linguistic truth. There is no such thing. It's not even the point. And, uh, and in that way, in a second time, he walked off the stage, dropping the mic, saying, there, fix philosophy again. Because ultimately, I think Wittgenstein realized that the discipline itself had fundamental problems because it had misapplied a, a pursuit of, of inherent truth inside of a structure that forms thoughts that can't be systematically uh, removed from the subjective nature the thoughts are created within. In other words, you cannot solve the 
fundamental problems of philosophy because language is involved. Even the problems you're coming up with are inherent in the language structure in which you think. So, at best, they're delusions. At worst, they are nonsense. <laughs> and your time wasted spending the mental masturbation that comes with philosophy was something Wittgenstein twice in his in his pursuit of truth tried to eradicate. He never published his philosophical investigations. He died before it was published and so it was posthumously uh, released by um, by people who had worked uh, to edit his earlier works. And I don't I, I often wonder when he would have... Uh, I'm glad they did. Philosophical Investigations is one of... It might even be the most influential book of the 20th century for philosophy. It's certainly in the top five. And, uh, and it's a fantastic representation of what it means to mature and progress in your thinking. To fundamentally flip your earlier proof of, of philosophical misapplications and show the flaw in your own model as, a, as the very misapplication in philosophy that you had described as, as having been fundamentally overlooked for centuries... by interpreting the same data, coming to a similar conclusion that ultimately, <laughs> much like bringing a, a, a fruit basket to a, to a mechanic and asking him to uh, ripen them, there is no reason for you to go to a philosopher. They don't help. You just need to experience life, understand the limitations language will place upon it and not let that derail you from the fullness that is there to be had because language is limited. So interact with the world, experience it, and language will evolve as necessary to describe those experiences as we go. But your point here isn't to get trapped in trying to describe what's going on, but to go do stuff. And uh, so for that, Wittgenstein, because I fundamentally agree with you, don't talk about shit, start doing it, says the guy who talks to himself every day for an hour. Okay, but aside from the direct criticism leveled at myself that is necessary and fair, if you're not looking even at your own great moments and willing to think you might have achieved something in a mindset where the achievement at the time felt life shaping but 20 years later you look at yourself and can't believe you even pursued that goal it was the wrong road and there are very few examples of somebody who fundamentally 
reinvented a discipline of academics like Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I'm sure I pronounced that poorly, but it's better than calling him guacamole. But Mr. Wittgenstein had the true to himself nature to one, reject his inheritance, two, to reinvent philosophy from a uniquely linguistically pure point of view. It was innovative in the sense that it was so simplistically consistent that language had to be addressed as a core fundamental um, framework in philosophy that had never really been addressed. Like it was, it was a revolutionary thought that had been sitting on the table that nobody had noticed in some ways. And then to realize that what was a very, uh, <laughs> the logical positivism that, that emerged from this was clinging to the idea that this was finally solving maybe what philosophy's core problem is, is that it has been immersed in a pursuit of unknowable, undescribable phenomena. And then to relook at all of that and decide, wait a second, it's not an application. Language isn't meant as a technical interpretation of reality and truth. It is an emergent social construct of how we describe this experience we have inside of our reality. And that still doesn't mean you need a freaking philosopher. Just philosophy needs to be here to unwind anything that keeps people from letting those experiences be as visceral and real as they're supposed to be. So as someone who knows that I actually probably enjoy mental masturbation more than real masturbation. Well, having a guy like Wittgenstein around to tell you to get the hell out in the real world, do a little teaching in a school, get fired for being a harsh disciplinarian. There is some, I'm sure, repressed homosexuality in Mr. Wittgenstein. So the commonalities aren't 100%. But while I'm not as smart, gifted, or insightful when it comes to seeing how much the world trips us up like Mr. Wittgenstein did. I do feel like I stumble all over the world and I do feel like I uh, too have reinvented myself and I do feel like the thing that matters most now is that I experience this world in a way that whether or not language can describe it is irrelevant because the shared social interaction of 3D reality with other human beings. Well, you can sit around wasting a lot of time talking about what that means, what it's like, what it all boils down to, and what the essence of it really is. Or you can go out there and have a great time and realize that's really the only reason you're here. Talking about it? Yeah. It's nowhere near as good as doing it.